0: So I wanna kick off what we're talking about this morning and we're finding ourselves in a bigger series called uh, Creative Minority. And that's, we're, we're looking to this book as a bit of a guide through the series. And this is gonna take us all the way up till Christmas. So to kind of tap into our theme this morning, I wanna tell this story. And it happened about when I was 15 and it's kind of a, a situation for folks that are like under 17. It's a do what I say, uh, not what I do story if you guys feel me on that one right? <laughs> <laughs> Owen, Owen was here. I was, you yeah, he left. <laughs> so when I was uh, 13, I went to, or I was 12 years old, and it was grade eight, I have a late birthday, and I went to MSS, which was one of three high schools of mission that's changed over the years. Now it's the only high school, and there's two middle schools. So I was at MSS, and I was there to play basketball, but I I didn't end up playing basketball actually. I, I had like a 180 and I got I actually got excited as a student, which you know that helps happens really seldom for me. <laughs> and then I switched schools to kind of return back to these friends that I had all the way throughout uh, elementary school because I went to Hatzik and I switched over to Hatsick High School. It wasn't Hatzik Middle. And I got reintroduced to this this friend group. And high school was awesome. And apparently those that say that high school is awesome, it's like when you peaked, apparently (laughs) as a person. Which I don't know if that's the case for me. Maybe it was, I don't know. So I'm I'm in high school and I'm reintroduced to my friends again, which was awesome. But then I meet all these other friends from different schools. And I think a a few of them, they're they're still dear friends to this day, but I think if I was Ben Abercrombie's parent, I wouldn't really want some of these guys (laughs) as his friend. So in grade nine, that was the beginning of, I had always kind of like a big social circle, but it was the beginning of hanging out with some friends that were awesome, but weren't really like the best influence. So this one friend in particular, who was probably my closest friend all the way throughout those years, and we're still reasonably close today, uh, he was like the leading guy that I would get into mischief with. So in, in grade 10, I'm, I'm 15 starting in grade 10, and uh, you're kind of at that age where you're, like a, you're becoming a bit of a young man. You're shifting from like the 12, 11, where you're, just, you're getting more characteristics of, of an adult, and you're less so kind of characterized by your adolescence or whatever. So one of the things that we were experimenting with at that age, and you can probably all guess what, what those experimentations were. <laughs> so this first one was with like alcohol. So I remember being at this friend's, this friend's house this one night, it's probably Friday or Saturday night, and there wasn't like a fun gathering to go to. So we're in his basement and his parents didn't, they don't really have the same religious background that I had. So it's it's kinda less surveillance at this guy's house. <laughs> and it's like a, a basement that's like deep below ground and away from the parents and stuff. So he pulls out some some orange juice and what you accompany with orange juice if you're if you're having a drink, some vodka. And I remember I had like my first sip of alcohol. And I had a weird experience. It was as if, as if I was doing, like, something way harder because I just had such limited experience with alcohol. But I remember taking a sip and it, like, sent a, sent, like, a shock through my body. <laughs> which was, like, you know, really, really weird. And then it didn't, it didn't really happen again. So anyways, that lifestyle of, of, like, partying and getting up to things that I just knew, like, um, my, I wasn't raised in that way, really, it, like, really picked up the pace for, like, about 10 months of my life. Where it was like, it's all that me and my friends did. And it was the focus, and it was the fun, and it was the way we socialized. And we, had, we, we, we could kind of hang out with older, with older grades, which is not, it's not if you're doing th- those things with older grades, it's a disadvantage in terms of maturity. So it, it comes to this head in August. So 10 months of kind of going at it. And I'm happy my dad's not in the room. <laughs> this one actually that and uh so me and the same the same friend we were going down the street to this this other friend's house and there's it's it's a co-ed party and it's awesome you know we're at his house less surveillance and i think his parents were out and the plan was that we're going to go to this party and then we're going to retreat back to his house to crash for for the night which is perfect if you're wanting to get up to some mischievous things. <laughs> and it was really a time of experimentation in my life. Like, I'm trying out new stuff, and I'm aware that this is inconsistent with my upbringing. Even though my siblings at the time were all, were all kind of up to that together. <laughs> which is like, that's chaotic. A lot of us have turned a corner since then. So we, we go to this, this party, and it's like a smaller party. And like, the, the booze picks up the pace. And I don't know, I don't really know how to share, like I'm 15, but we had, we had this ability to hang out with older people. So I would say that we were like a little bit (coughs) further ahead and maybe kind of like our awareness of, of the world. And we're, we're both drinking this, this drink of choice for the night. And remember, I had a, I had a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) And not for any particular reason other than it's just like, it's fun. That's what we're, that's what we're doing that night. And the main reason I was there, because there was, like I said, it's a co-ed party, so there was this girl there that I had in mind that I wanted to be like, I wanted to, like, have some, develop something there. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to the party, and we're having fun, and then what, what became very clear to me is that I'm more excited about her than she is about me. <laughs> and, and it, it just—it was resolute, and it's funny. Right when that happened, I just said, "Why am I here?" <laughs> so, out of all people, guess who I called to come pick me up? And this does not happen. This has not happened. Mike Abercrombie to come <laughs> pick me up. And what I rem- like—I would have never done that. Like I was not in my right mind that night. So, I, like I—I I, I have a different perspective on what was going on there now than I did then. So I call my dad, and I remember walking to the car, and then I woke up the next day. Which, for those that are unfamiliar with that, that's called blacking out. So (laughs) so I woke up the next day, and this this is not a poor story about my dad, um, other than that he didn't know about it. But I think it it was like where it's, uh, you're a parent and you're like, you're just, you're very sharp in this conversation. So I wake up at like 6.30, And I'm otherwise a a pretty good kid. Like I got a job at 14 and I was like saving lots of money and I was, you know, I was doing reasonable in school. I was playing sports. So I wake up at 6.30 and I have this conversation with my dad and it was literally like a three minute conversation. And it was him, he had just had a perfect calibration of not um, pursuing punishment but he was aware like Ben's a, Ben's a young man, I'm his dad, I'm gonna pick him up from wherever. And then what happened is that uh, I, didn't, I didn't participate in that lifestyle like to that's, I never did it to that degree again actually, until it, like there was some new challenges at 19 to 20. So that was like a very impactful conversation I had with my dad for me to halt that lifestyle like absolutely in its tracks. But the problem that I had is that it was always tempting To go back to. So I'm like in this fight for the next, like, probably five years until I hit a bit of a breakthrough of struggling with that, wanting to kind of be at the party with my friends. So I want to introduce us to some language this morning. And it might be familiar language. And it's called uh, separatism and uh, syncretism. So, syncretism is when, if you're in a Christian culture, it's when you are having a challenging time. Uh, saying, saying no to the host culture. So if you're a minority group that's a Christian culture and you're part of a dominant culture that does not share the same values, syncretism is a ditch to fall in. It's a temptation just to be slowly kind of accommodating and compromising. And that was my issue. It's syncretism. But the other side is something called separatism, where if you're a part of a Christian culture and you're, uh, that's existing in a dominant culture, it's where you imagine or envision like a separatist movement, where you are a part of a Christian community that has a Christian doctor, a Christian school, a Christian tailor, a Christian wherever, you're churning butter, and you're listening to like Chris Tomlin. That's the the other side of it. So what happened at like about, what happened at about 20 years old-ish, And I'm thankful for a lot of other kind of players in my life. At that point, I was involved with Young Life, which was sweet. Uh, Became good buds with Greg. Was pretty tight with my dad. My brother Josh was changing a lot at that same time. But I remember um, feeling that, that temptation towards syncretism shift when I felt like this weight of being a good example for the people around me. And I think... I I was developing like in young life and stuff so I had a sphere of influence at the time but I remember that responsibility of being a good example it just it sunk deep where it's like I I was I was kind of becoming a man like in a way So I tell that story this morning because we're talking about ethics and formation which those are kind of fancy you know college words or whatever and uh, I've illuminated that personal story to, uh, to kind of bring it back to a, really a personal level. Because there's two ditches to fall into with ethics and formation. And one is that, like I was telling in that question this morning, there's a temptation to overshare. So it's like when you're talking about ethics, like what, what kind of ethic? And how did you develop that ethic? And what experience led to that conviction about that ethic? Then the other side with ethics and formation is polarization. Where I can say some things in here that would like, you know, it would probably bring anger. And particularly coming out of the last two years where ethics was like, you know, it was the, it was the conversation that everyone was talking about. So in, a, in avoiding those two ditches, polarization and inappropriate sharing, what then is inspiring or provocative about ethics and, and formation? And this is where I felt like I started to understand, understand where the book that's kind of our guide is getting at. And it's to do with this progression, and it's that good formation has to do with good values or, or ethics. And we then, so this is the progression, it's that good formation, the type of people that we're becoming, has to do with the type of ethics or values that we have. And the advantage is, is that you become the embodiment of your values and ethics, so you're no longer trying to be a person with integrity, you are a person with integrity. And that's the rub of this conversation about formation and ethics. It's that these values become the type of people that we are. Which at 20 years old, that, I had a vision of the type of person I want to be. I want to be like somebody who can carry responsibility, lead others, and set an example for younger people that were 15 years old, because I, I was in young life. We good? We're tracking? Yeah. Cool. So two weeks ago, and, and last week as well, we introduced this idea that we're in a, in a post-Christian culture. And that kind of references that there was a culture wars in the 20th century. And the big news to... It's not actually the big news, but for some people, there needs to be some self-awareness developed there. But it's like Christians, or in particular, conservative fundamentalism. In the U.S., it's a kind of a different experience in Canada. They lost the culture wars. So uh, we went from a Christian culture to a, to a post-Christian culture. And what confuses me about that language when we talk about post-Christian Christian culture, it's that I grew up in a family that kind of makes me slightly uh, delusional to this idea. Because I grew up in a family and in a church. So I don't always feel like I'm a part of a post-Christian culture. That the culture at large is no longer... Christian, like you don't start your day off at your bank or whatever in a prayer meeting. That's not the case anymore. That's, it's frowned upon. You're either, As a Christian, you're weird or you're dangerous. That's really one of the two that you can be. So if you're looking at, Christ, at Christians and Christian culture from at Mission and then at BC and then at Canada, it's, it's post-Christian and there's this rising group of people that are calling themselves nuns. So the fastest growing religious group in Canada. And I was just, this is not me just saying this off the top of my head. It's referencing a study by a guy named Joel Feeney, and he said that the fastest group, religious group growing in Canada, is those who say that they're we're not religious. So it's the nuns, and then there's folks that are, um, are really like jaded by fundamentalist Christianity, and they're not nuns. They're duns. Like they're they're done with the whole thing. So that's why separatism and syncretism is so its so tempting. It's because anybody who's, who's this weird Christian is between a rock and a hard place. And those feel like the options. It's either separatism where we create this separatist movement and we have this vision of Christian, whatever, Christian, um, Where you're just living in a Christian circle. Or it's syncretism where you're tempted to just accommodate the host culture. So... There's this other way, though, and that, that's really the point of the series, and it's a creative minority. And the interesting thing to note about a creative minority is that it's not an idea or an ideology, but it, it's a people, which I find really helpful in understanding this observation of a creative minority. And it's the type of, it's, it's the type of people who have become their values. So it's people that have a distinct moral ethic, and they're, they're consistently choosing that moral ethic in the, in a, between a rock and a hard place. And in so doing, they become the type of people who actually are the embodiment of that ethic. The idea of creative minority or the observation of creative minority uh, came from a guy named Tornby. And then it was popularized by a rabbi named Jonathan Sachs. And the idea that Tornby observed is that cultures, and I was just learning this with Lainey Forcier yesterday as I was tutoring her, is that cultures, and I'm, I'm like a little bit out of my depth here, so I'm relying on the scholarship of Tornby, but cultures progress, they have a zenith point, like a, a, a pinnacle point, and they then they descend. Lainey could tell you five reasons why uh, civilizations descend. But the idea with a creative minority that Tornby was talking about is that the, whole, the, cult, the dominant culture or the dominant civilization progresses, then when there's a presence of a creative minority, that zenith point is prolonged, so they don't as quickly descend. And the kind of the, the example par excellence is the Jews in the U.S. And I was just learning this this week. The Jews in the U.S. make up 1.4% of the population, but if you go look at cultural hubs for the U.S. that are really kind of like the the leading aspects of that country being like the modern day Babylon. It's just like, it's the, it's the most powerful country in the world. Guess who's leading those dominant sectors? It's that 1.4% of Jewish people. So apparently Hollywood, if you see kind of the behind the scenes management of Hollywood, it's made up of Jews who are the people that are, like this idea kind of sprung from their history, this idea of a creative, uh, a creative minority. So exile is this, are we hanging in there? Yeah, it's kind of a teaching moment. So exile is this, is this metaphor that um, it's, it's in connection to creative minority because it's typically creative minorities or minority groups that are on the fringe in exile. They're no longer the dominant culture. So this idea or this metaphor of exile runs all the way through scripture. And there's not really a better character in Scripture, probably other than Jesus, who uh, really illuminates this idea of living in exile as a, as a creative minority. And his, his name is Daniel. And Daniel is also the only guy who, who, like, doesn't, he hasn't really done anything incredibly atrocious. So, like, he's, he's referenced for his faithfulness, not for, like, like David um, k- killing the dude and then wow. taking his wife. Yeah. So he's actually he's a good guy to learn from on the topic. So I want to turn to a passage uh, in Daniel. It's a familiar passage. It's Daniel 1 to 8. And can we throw that up on the screen? <laughs> We're, that's coming in a couple weeks or next week. Oh. It's all good. I can talk a little bit about Israel at the time when this happened. Maybe if you have a Bible or an app on your phone that can pull that passage up, but we can kind of read along with it together. So uh, Israel knows exile, they're familiar with exile, and Israel has been this people group that have uniquely had an attention to Yahweh, or the God of the Old Testament, but in the case of the story that we're reading right now is that Israel has turned their ear from Yahweh, and they're choosing to be. They they no longer have a concern for actually following Yahweh. So Yahweh does this, and he kind of lifts off this protection of that people group. And um, like what's happened in Israel throughout history, and in Jerusalem in particular, other people groups sweep through, like in the case what we're going to read today, and they they desecrate any religious kind of monuments or any um, sectors that are really impacting the culture. And then they take people away. So let's, let's jump into this story, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5. So in the third year of the reign of oh Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Babylon and its king come to Jerusalem, the land of the Jews, who have their ancestral rights to that land, and they besiege it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of... Judah, his his hand along. What's happening? Oh, it's this thing. <laughs> I don't know if I can move this. I have to move it. That's the problem. Oh, <laughs> And the Lord delivered <laughs> <laughs> along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his god. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Ladies, listen here. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of Babylonians. So what's going on here? What would we call this? Babylonia swept into Jerusalem. It's taken its people group, and now it's kind of taken some of its finest young people, and it's they've entered them into like this assimilation program. Where so this is this is where we. the you came out of it. So yeah, he's still drunk, so? oh, I said you still drunk. Oh, still so drunk. Uh, uh. Okay, yeah <laughs> <ones>. <laughs> so it's this assimilation program and this is this is where we're introduced to, to Daniel so let's keep reading verses 6 and 7 among those who were chosen from land, Judah, Daniel, Hananiah Mishael Ezariah the chief official gate. So, oh okay this is where we are so these four young dudes are chosen they're, they're exemplary young guys and they're given these new names. And that's a big deal in this culture because your name, it's, it represents the, the truest part of you and it represents your destiny. So this, this, this assimilation program is targeting like the heart of the identity of these young men, these young men who are coming out of quite a religious, a very religious culture. So it's like to the core of them, they're trying to transform them into a people that synchronize with the host culture. Isn't that fascinating? So this, this is where it gets even, even more fascinating, is some of the names that they were given. And th- that, that comment about ancient culture and like this representing the truest aspect of them, that's, that's not me just blabber That's from a, a scholar named Michael Knowles who, uh, who said that. So Daniel, his name in Hebrew at the time meant Yahweh is my judge. So it's, this represents the truest part of him and it's his destiny that he's going to be a person who's concerned about Yahweh being his judge. And this is what it means um, in Babylonia is that his name gets switched to Belt, Telshazzar, after Bel, which is a moniker for Marduk who's the king of the Babylonian gods. And it means that Daniel is now the the treasurer of Bel. So it's like you can't really target the heart of a young man more than this, coming out of that religious setting. Then Hananiah, that his name in Hebrew means Yahweh shows grace. And he's named Shadrach under the moon god Aku. These are all gods in the pantheon of of Babylonian gods. Then there's Mishael, whose name is like, who is like Yahweh in Hebrew. And he is renamed uh, Meshach, which, which means who is like a coup. And then, which that's a brutal one, I hey? <laughs> Like who, who is like God and then who is like Satan. Like that, that one hurts. And then there's Ezariah, which, whose, whose name is Yahweh is my helper in Hebrew. And he got switched to embe, Embednego, right? I knew that. I'm just yeah. reading it on paper. I know that from Veggie Tales. But exactly. Exactly. you see it written, you just butcher it. Possibly. So his name is uh, switched to servant of another pantheon god named Nu. And what is so cool about this story is that these these young guys they're obviously reluctant to receive these names. So throughout the entire book of Daniel, scholars are looking at the, the, the spelling of these names and like they keep changing and they're going like, what is going on here? But then this consensus developed that this is these young men or whoever wrote down the book of Daniel, it's like this jab at those names saying, yeah, right, we're going to actually fairly write these names down. Which is, you know, I love it. It's awesome. So verse uh, 7, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. This is another cue into a cultural, um, kind of a cultural significant thing for Jewish people, is that what you ate, it, it was like a signpost for how devout you were spiritually. And We know that. It's like kosher food and whatnot. It so says it's a signpost for, for how you are like spiritually and, and religiously. Yeah. So the, the takeaway from this passage is that Daniel learned to live in Babylon. It's that he, t- he took on this name and he, he chose not to defile it. But what we know from the rest of the story is like Daniel stayed in Babylon and in that what pop culture says, he was in the world, but he didn't become of the world. And that's the expertise of Daniel. But I, then comes again for those that still have the hangups about separatism, or syncretism. You know, there's such, there's such tempting options. So, what I want to turn to is another passage that Jeremiah writes. And this is Jeremiah in Jerusalem. He's one of the Jews that weren't taken to Babylon. And he's a, he's a prophet. He's someone who hears God's voice and then submits it to the culture for them to do something at it. So, he's writing to the first wave of exiles in Babylon. And these are his words. Uh, it's all good, I can keep going. Oh, sweet. So in Jerusalem to Babylon, and these are directions for the Jewish refugees who are now living in this strange land that's hostile towards their life to, to not accommodate or to learn how to live in the host culture. And this, this blew my mind when I realized that there's a connection here. Jeremiah writing to Daniel in Babylon as Daniel's learning how to stick it out there. Which is pretty much is happening is that it's, Daniel, it's, it's like this passage is saying, you're not going home, so learn, learn how to live there. So let's read it together. This is the text of the letter, and it's going to really get into the meat of it in, in a few verses. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. Oh, man. I see the, the sign, the shadow there. I can get it on my phone. Oh, awesome! Thank you. So this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders amongst the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim, the yeah, you know what i to mean, so, and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. This. So these are the people that went there. The skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Alessa, son of Japh, man, this is the Old Testament. I cannot pronounce any of these. Shachan and to Gamariah, son of Halika, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, so let's read this. This is really cool. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is this is pro, this is kind of cueing uh, us to that God lifted up that protective measure over this people group because they were choosing syncretism even before they were in exile. So it's like, okay, you guys don't really want me. I'm gonna let you have your I'm gonna let you, I'm just gonna let fate have its way. This is what the Lord God Almighty and God of Israel says to those that carried in the exile from Jerusalem. Build houses and settle down. This is, this is really interesting because it's our cultural moment. Is, it's called exile as Christians. That's, that's the consensus right now. And it's like the stats are in. So we liken ourselves more to Israel in exile than we do anywhere else in history. It's like it's Christianity's exile fringe minority moment. So this passage, we can kind of view it as being written to us you know, in mission in Canada, that's what's so cool. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, this is amazing, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. That is not separatism. Pray that the Lord pray to the Lord because if it prospers, you will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them. Which that really confused me. Don't listen to the dreams that you encourage them. That's, that's like a confusing translation. It's pretty much saying, if they have dreams that are meant to confuse you, don't listen to them. They're prophesying lies to you in the name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plan... And this, is, this is like every Christian's you know desired tattoo on their arm. Over there. For I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29.11. The one my dad got me to memorize as a little boy. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you... Bingo, yeah, we know it. Isn't that amazing? That, that's, that was the encouragement to this, these refugees in a strange land in the face of separatism and syncretism. And he's saying, choose a new road. Choose the road of a creative minority that doesn't just, not only do they challenge the culture, but they bless the culture. And their challenge to the culture is their blessing for the culture. That, that's, it, there's a connection to the Jews in the U.S. there, which is so, so neat. So to conclude, just like a few more, kind of a few more snippets. Uh, I want to introduce this idea of, of hard power versus soft power. So hard power is convert to Islam or you die. That's an example of hard power. Or it's, uh, Ben, if you, park on, if you park on First Avenue for two hours, two and a half hours, and it's only two hours, you're gonna get a, a $50 fine, and if you don't pay it in two weeks, it's gonna be 70. That's hard power. Yeah. But then there's also uh, soft power, and I feel like that is more of, of kind of my experience to say. And this is, this is the small decisions, like the syncretism idea, that just slowly corrode, they just corrode like your soul, it's the small compromises or justifications or entitlements, and it's, you know, for me it's like justifying not, not giving my resources generously, or it's justifying what I know would not be a healthy like amount of drinking, and I'm just slowly justifying it, that's soft power, that's like when there's a there's a power at work that's slowly decaying you. It's not convert to Islam or die. And uh, it's, it's an experience, less of oppression, but more of seduction. And this is, this is the words of one pastor I really like to hear from. He's more than a pastor now, actually. He's like a, kind of a scholar. He says, soft power, it's more like a siren than a bully, alluding to that Greek mythology. It seduces you into syncretism and accommodation. And it's lethal because it's unassuming. We aren't aware of how we're changing, which I don't mean any of this in the sense of a guilt trip. But like, by no no means, you guys heard where I'm coming from. and therein lies a few of my vices. If I'm being honest, like the temptation to, to be one with my friends or whatever. So this is not a guilt trip, but I just encourage you to be sensitive to your conscience. Has there been a moment, even in the last week, where you uh, you were less than the person that you think God has made you? Or that you ought to be, or whatever. And soft, soft seduction, or soft—oh my goodness—soft power <coughs> as seduction it, is my experience. So since that kind of turning point at nineteen, I've had to maintain like a, a huge high bar. Uh, and this is me being a little bit in a weirdly vulnerable of accountability. Like I need—I always need at the bare minimum someone in my life who has permission to ask me about. How am I doing on these topics? Uh, And that's like my resistance to soft power. So Daniel's call, like this is the this is the main point, is to to live with integrity. And he's the example of living with integrity in Exile because he he took it to the the absolute extreme. It's that those kosher food laws when he was in Babylon, all they said is that you don't just just eat kosher. But Daniel took it to the, the next measure. Where he didn't just eat kosher, he said, I can't have anything to do with anything at the king's table, nor the wine, because I'm, I'm in exile. I realize my sensitivities. And, and guess what happens to Daniel and the rest of the story? is that, that response, that not feeling entitled to freedom, but realizing his cultural moment and knowing himself, is that he, he became the second most influential person in Babylon. He's the king's go-to guy. Which is, it's just, it's a really interesting result of someone who's deciding to lean on the side of holiness as opposed to freedom. So my my final message to you is imagine what God could do with with your influence. This is Daniel in exile in a strange land. What about you in exile in a mission city? What could God do with your influence as you're slowly learning to just put the next thing on the table? Uh, so my, my next, my last kind of two concluding questions, and I already said one of them, is does something come to mind when you think of compromise? When you think of like the last week, is there a loss of integrity? And I, I realize I'm being quite personal here, but that's, that's kind of the, what churches do, I guess. Maybe too personal. Then the second question is, I like this one a bit more, is who in your life needs your example? They need you to be a person of integrity. I'm going to leave those two with you. I feel like I just created like a absolute silence. In the <laughs> and uh, we're going to dig. I'm, I'm, doing the, I'm not the normal guy doing this every week, but I, I have the privilege of doing it again next week. So we're going to look a little bit more into Daniel. And it, in my opinion, it just keeps getting cooler with this guy. Like I'm, I'm really learning from him. So we're going to go further into his life where he's living off some of these words that we read in Jeremiah. And we're going to see what he's like as a, when he has silver hair. We saw him as a young man today, but we're going to look at him as a guy with silver hair at around 50 or 60 next week. So why don't I pray, and then we're going to enter into the last song. And then now we're going to, we're going to end it there. And I've already created. I've already created this awkward silence. So why don't we live in this silence for you know 15 more seconds and uh, listen to yourself? And if you if you have that muscle that um, where you have an ability to to think that you're listening to God, exercise that too. So to listening to yourself or to God um, in reference to the topic this morning.